1: Welcome to Libromania, a podcast for the Book Obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and each week I'm chatting with authors, biographers, designers, collectors, critics, and other people who help make books so worthy of our attention. This is chapter 19, in which I chat with Dr. Christopher Hull about Graham Greene's mysterious life as an international spy, while also writing some of the most beloved books of the 20th century, including Our Man in Havana, one of the handful of novels he referred to as his entertainments.
2: What is it that William Golding said about Green, that he was the chronicler of 20th century humankind's consciousness? And I think that's very true in the sense that he basically lived through every decade of the 20th century, or born in 1904, died in 1991. But, you know, he just lived through all, you know, he was growing up during the, the First World War, was there during the Blitz at the start of the Second World War, served in Africa for MI6, the sort of early middle part of the war, worked under Kim Philby in the late part of the war, resigned from the service before the war ended, and then set the third man in the bombed-out ruins of Vienna in 1949, then wrote The Quiet American, presaging the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Our men and Havana are on the cusp of the Cuban Revolution, the comedians in Papadoc's Haiti, you know, the voodoo dictator. He, was, he just lived it. He just lived it. And he was there, you know, he's constantly traveling. He was in, in Africa, he was in Malaya, he was in Vietnam, he was in Cuba, he was in Mexico during religious persecution in the late 1930s. You know, he, was just, he just lived the 20th century and it's all there in his
1: novels and films. For readers of a particular bent, the names roll off the tongue. John Buchan, William Somerset Maugham, Ian Fleming, Eric Ambler, John Le Carré, Frederick Forsyth, lenn Alan Furst. These are the greatest spy novelists of the 20th century, the founding fathers of the genre. Readers who love the genre each have their own particular Mount Rushmore among these geniuses. Personally, I'm partial especially to Ambler and Le Carré, but there's no denying that these are the authors who invented and transformed one of the most important genres in 20th century literature and among them belongs Graham Greene. And not just because he also wrote you know, serious literature, books like The Power and the Glory and Brighton Rock and The End of the Affair, but because he wrote some of the most ripping and exciting stories of international espionage ever published, including The Confidential Agent and Our Man in Havana, which is the book today's show focuses on. Whereas The Confidential Agent, written in the late 30s, is more of a traditional gripping spy thriller, Our Man in Havana, which Greene produced in the late 50s, was a satirical send-up of both international spycraft and of the genre itself. And Green knew both well. He was a spy himself, not just a spy storyteller. In fact, in one way or another, he and several of his siblings were all involved in that world. And as Dr. Hull explains in today's show, Green was a spy until the day he died. But he had a complicated relationship with the work, and those complications show up especially clearly in his book, Our Man in Havana. Dr. Hull explores those complications in his own new book, Our Man Down in Havana, the story behind Graham Greene's Cold War spy novel, which tells the story of Greene's novel, where the idea came from, how it evolved, and how it was influenced by Greene's various adventures, affairs, and political machinations. Dr. Hall is a senior lecturer in Spanish and Latin American Studies at the University of Chester. His research focuses on British interactions with Latin America. He first visited Cuba in 1997 and has traveled extensively around the island during 17 further visits, often in the footsteps of Graham Greene. Recently, I chatted with Dr. Hall about his book, why he loves Graham Greene, and why Greene's story is so interesting and it really is an interesting story and Hall's book brings Green and Green's time in communist Cuba to life in fascinating fashion so without further ado here's my conversation with Dr. Christopher Hall so we know that Graham Greene was enthusiastic about espionage about spycraft about all those sorts of things he wrote multiple books about it he was engaged in it himself for much of his adult life where do you think that that uh, interest came from originally?
2: Well, I mean, the interest came originally by him being directly involved in espionage. There are rumours, there is speculation that he actually undertook espionage a little bit before the Second World War, but it's proven that he, he was actually recruited by his sister early in the Second World War and after training in the UK was posted out to Sierra Leone in West Africa in a quite sort of inconsequential part of the, uh, of, the, of the world where not much was happening. His espionage was not very uh, productive, not really much went on. He was mainly posted in Sierra Leone to monitor the smuggling of industrial diamonds and he said in the whole time that he was there, which is about a year and a half, he didn't manage to, to identify uh, or, or spot a single diamond.
1: <laughs> so was he not good at it or did it just not enough was happening? Uh,
2: well, uh, this it sort of ties in with one of his other novels, which is The Heart of the Matter, which is sort of based right. even more directly on his experience in West Africa, but not so much his spy work. Yeah. I don't think he was a, a I mean, we we have to be careful here because well, he wasn't exactly a spy per se. Sure, he sure. was more a spy handler. Right. His right. actual role was was to recruit locally, and so for other other people to be doing the dirty work, and him just to be relaying their intelligence uh, back to London. So,
1: so you mentioned his sister was involved in it, and his brother was. Yeah, his brother Elizabeth. fancied himself a spy, right? <laughs>
2: Well, there were two brothers, you see, the um, younger brother, Hugh Green, who later became director general of the BBC. He was pretty definitely undertaking some intelligence work in Germany pre-war. But it was the older brother, Herbert, the black sheep of the family, who was just a failure at everything he did in life. He worked for the, the Japanese in the 1930s. And then offered up his services to, to to quite comically to to MI5. So I do document that in, yeah, in the book because yeah, yeah. he, he was a um he was an inspiration for Green, but Green never publicly or even you know in writing acknowledged that his brother Herbert, uh, which in itself at least on this side of the Atlantic is quite common uh, quite a humorous name. Um, Herb to call somebody a Herbert. Um, I think this this started in the nineteen sixties, actually. But um, huh. to call somebody a Herbert is to call somebody a fool. It's a bit 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 of an insult. Huh. Um, but yeah, he he his espionage was was just a complete joke. Um, but like I say, Green, Green never never alluded to, to 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 this. But I think it's pretty clear that he was one of the one of the inspirations that that went into his the character James Wormold in Our Man in Havana a couple of decades later.
1: So three of the Green siblings were legitimately involved in in espionage. They they and they were they were not frauds. And then one of them fancied himself a spy and was and wasn't good at it. He was he was a he was a fraud.
2: Yeah, so- well the brothers and then there's a sister. So there's there's three brothers and the sister There's says four of them actually if you include you know including Groan Green.
1: Oh right, right, right. But so it's a family thing. How does it happen that the entire that all of these gram, these Green siblings became wrapped up in this? Is there something about the Green bloodline that made them all adventure seekers or something like that?
2: Ooh, well, um, well they're definitely a talented family. Sure. Definitely yeah, a talented yeah. fa- family with with the and an intelligent family with the exception of Herbert. Who was the odd one out? <laughs> Poor Herbert. That's a good question. Why did why, why why did they that there was an uncle, wasn't there? I mentioned him in the book, another Graham Green who had worked in the sort of early uh, you know, I mean the intelligence services weren't that long standing when Green joined. Um so there was an uncle who'd been involved. So maybe it maybe it did literally uh, run in the blood. I think they were quite good at it. But, of course, Graham Greene's uh, main talent was to, uh, was to write about it and to uh, satirise it, not actually the – he wasn't a very practical person, very un-James Bond-like <laughs> person, highly impractical. I mentioned an incident when, when he was posted in Sierra Leone when he managed to uh, lock his, his – um, he, he locked himself out of the safe that had been sent to him because it, got, it confused the uh, combination – and so he had to tow it up to headquarters and get it, get it um, open with a blowtorch <laughs> and then make, make out that it had been damaged in transit so they could send him another one.
1: So do you think that in some ways Green sort of saw a fine line between himself and his brother, who his brother who actually kind of was bad at it, and Green who recognizes in himself maybe some of the potentiality to, to, to lean that way a little bit? Is it possible um, that...
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if he saw that in himself. <laughs> I'm not sure if he would have made that comparison. I think his, his brother Herbert had made a real hash of spying and made a fool of himself and yeah. embarrassed himself, slightly embarrassed the family. For sure, Green mentions in his second autobiography, Ways of Escape, that he came across people both in Sierra Leone and back in London who we realized were fabricating reports um, with the objective of, of earning more money. And this was particularly pronounced when the people that they were working for, be it the Germans, well, especially the Germans, when they realized that, that, that Germany was going to lose, you know, they tried to extract as much money out, out of them before the war ended, you know, before, before, the, before the source of funds dried up.
1: Right, right, right. so, one of the things that I was thinking a lot about as I was reading your book is, as you mentioned, Our Man in Havana is a satire. Um, and mm. he wrote The Confidential Agent and other books that are mm. related to the topic of espionage. And he called mm. them, what did he call them? Ent- entertainments. Is that right?
2: Entertainments, that right? Yeah. He had a group of, of books that he defined as entertainments. So, Although so the de- sort of definition became a bit hazy as he um, right, yeah. progressed and, and and he stopped. Talking, he, he stopped defining them in those terms. But yeah, Armand and Van is very much one of his entertainments.
1: So, so he calls them that, and in some ways, at least earlier in his career, as as you just alluded to, it seems like maybe he doesn't see himself as pursuing. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking too soon here, but the idea that there's a difference between those quote entertainments and the sort of higher brow literature that he was writing, such as in the Power and the Glory. Do you think he was out to write to sort of transcend that? you know, sort of the Ian Fleming type of work and write great literature in the spy genre and, and thus his coining them as entertainments was meant to be sort of a tongue-in-cheek phrase? or Or was he genuinely thinking about himself writing entertaining genre fiction that was of a different ilk than the highbrow literature he was writing?
2: It's difficult. To, oh, oh, it's interesting that you mentioned Fleming, and I mentioned Fleming a couple of times, both at the beginning and the end of the book. I don't right, think yeah. it's a coincidence that he called his spy James. Um, of course, we're talking about 1957 when he started to write Armand um, and Havana*. Um, I'm trying to remember the year that Casino Royale was published, 1953, if I'm, I think, I think I'm correcting saying. And people have been quite critical of um, Fleming. John yeah. le Carré, certainly later. Uh, you know, we're talking about 1960s when John, John um, le Carré's um – Career as an author really got, got, got going and start become successful. You know, really denigrated what he's, what Fleming had done with um, in portraying espionage. And I, I think to a certain degree, to, to a certain degree, Green is both satirizing the world of espionage, but also um, Fleming's sort of very glamorous and actually very unrealistic take on on uh, espionage. I think that that's one of the most interesting things about Arman and Havana um and I hope I bring that out in my book and people come to see that by the time they finish it is that it is just how ridiculous um the world of espionage is and the, and and green portrays it in that way but actually how the ridiculous side of espionage is actually a lot closer to the mark a lot truer than, um, than Fleming's quite glamorous take on espionage.
1: Hmm. So, did did Green think that Fleming's work was actually problematic? Like, did, did I, he think I, that I, Fleming was doing an injustice?
2: Yeah, I've never seen him. I, I haven't seen anything that he's written or said sure. to say that. But that to me, that comes out in Arman and Nirvana.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, because James Wormold is the antithesis of of uh, James Bond. You know, James Bond drives. Uh, I think it's an Aston Martin. and there'll be will be James Bond experts listening to this that say that's wrong. They, you know, <laughs> he's, always, he's always driving. You know, very smart, uh, fast, expensive cars. And, and James James Wermall drives a, a, a sort of old, clapped out Hillman.
1: Yeah. Um, even their even their cocktail of choice is different, right?
2: Yeah, and you know, and, and James Bond sleeps with you know l- lots of uh, you know extremely beautiful women from various nationalities, including other spies. And Green sort of inverts that, and the yeah. the main lady in Armand and Our Man is actually his daughter, being seduced by a a police captain on on the payroll of Q, of uh, the Cuban dictator. So, he sort of invert, he inverts everything. So, I'm sure that he that, that, that there is some um, allusion there to, uh, to to James Bond and Ian Fleming.
1: Did they ever? Did they know each other? Fleming, yeah, and
2: Green. they did, I, Yeah, they did. They, they, they did know each other. They did know each other. Of course, they'd both worked for British intelligence during the Second World War. But Ian Fleming for naval intelligence, and Green in Africa, and then under um, Kim Philby back in London. So quite a different sort of experience during the war. Fleming was, you know, unlike Green, quite a practical person and, and had, you know, seen or been involved in some of, the, um, some of the skullduggery that he later transformed into fiction in the James Bond series, whereas Green's actual experience of intelligence was generally mundane.
1: Mm. You, have you read Eric Ambler?
2: not so much no no i'm not very familiar with the with his work now
1: okay because i was gonna ask if you i mean he, green's always he's always got a blurb on the ambler books saying that Ooh. how great ambler was and sure. i was wondering ambler was writing earlier i th- well, i think yeah. his career ended in the 50s or something like that sure but he wrote sure. a lot in the, the 30s and 40s <clears throat> and he in a lot of ambler's work there's a lot of things like arms dealers and regular businessmen who get caught up in it. And it reminded me a lot of what you're describing when, when discussing the actual history of the Cuban revolution and the sort of regular business people that got involved in this international political intrigue. And um, is, is that something that you think green was particularly interested in capturing was the way sort of regular people got caught up in, in the world of espionage people who maybe were not, designed for it or built for it, but they sort of get trapped into it. Because he you know, he as you said, he wasn't necessarily a professional spy, he was kind of a handler.
2: No, and if you look at the people who were working alongside him in MI6, um, they were like him from different worlds. I mean he was as well as Graham Green um in in Sierra Leone, Malcolm mugridge uh was out in uh, Mozambique at the same time and then they they were working alongside each other in London. Most of the people working in MI6 alongside Grant Green were, were were not professional in, in, intelligence officers. They, they, you know, it was just something that they that they could uh, turn their talents to du- during the war. I mean, Green would have been pretty useless, at, you know, holding a gun. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so they recruited him for the, for the for the intelligence world. Yeah.
1: Where did your interest in in all this stem from? As you're talking, I'm thinking, man, you you spent so much time researching and reading letters. I mean, you must feel like you know Graham Greene pretty well. So, was was it start with an interest in Graham Greene or an interest in espionage? Or where did did your drive to to learn about this come from? I'd say
2: the initial interest started with Latin America generally. Uh, through reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. That was an inspiration to go to to Latin America for the first time in the early 90s. Then I seem to... See, Green died the year that I first went to Latin America, which is 1991. And I do remember reading about this person, Graham Green, this author who died, and think, oh, what a fascinating life. Hadn't actually read any of his novels at that point. Then travelled around Latin America. I think the power and the glory was the first novel that i read of his didn't really knock me over i think the, the the religious aspect the catholicism in it in it at the time left me a little bit cold and then i sort of cuba was after to go spending a couple of years in latin america traveling around and teaching english um i then went to, to cuba for the first time and sort of fell in love with it and um Read *Our Man in Havana* again. I'd, I'd, I'd read it before, and just just became, <laughs> but bit, bit, always fascinated by the, you know the idea of an Englishman in 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 Cuba. I just thought it was the the ideal setting for for, for that novel.
1: Hmm. So then you dove in, you just started researching and researching. How, when did you decide, I've got to write a book about this?
2: Well, to, to be honest, what the, the main reason I started this project was that I saw that there was a uh, research, uh, I suppose you call it a scholarship, available to spend a month in uh, Austin, Texas, at the Harry Ransom Center, where they've got most of the, well, a lot of green material. I was given that scholarship, went there for a month. Probably, actually, the main idea then was to write about all of Green's Latin American, Latin America-based novels and travelogues. But oh man, in the back of my mind, you know, Our Man and Havana was almost, always my favourite novel, and Cuba had been, was the country that I'd spent more time in. And when I, when, you know, after spending a month there and then going to Georgetown with this more green material and then Boston College up in Boston, I realised, yes, there's enough material here just to base a novel on Our Man and Havana, and, and there's a real story to tell here behind the story that that's what really came out at me and uh, it took a took a while to, to to finally complete it a lot of ups and downs on the way um <laughs> you know And uh, even now i'm still finding the, you know finding out the odd little thing i went to after after basically the manuscript was finished i went to cuba for a short holiday with the idea of trying to source some good pictures for the book and so I did find some good pictures for the book, but I also found a couple of tidbits that were too late for for, for the book itself. So I hope to do something with those as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I imagine having to conclude a project like that is um
2: Yeah, it's always
1: people- there's always a cut off point. Yeah, yeah. Some people probably would like to just keep writing forever and some people probably want to say, "All right, yeah. I've got to be done with this." Forever. Well, it's like,
2: it's like doing a PhD, you know, there comes a point when you have to start writing. You, you know, it's you yeah. get you get into the res- research mode and it's quite comfortable, but um, money yeah. Yeah. more than anything is the incentive to actually get a project finished and move <laughs> move on with your life and move on to something else. But uh, I think there's a couple of little spin-offs that could could still potentially be there with this
1: project. So you mentioned that you had read the power and the glory and then yeah. you are, you're very interested in Latin American and, and you're in studying yeah. Latin America. Yeah. And, and you mentioned his, the Catholicism, you mentioned that it left you a little bit cold. Wanna, at the time. Yeah. 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 So I want to ask you about that because as a, much of his work is consumed with his, um, his Catholicism, even if he wasn't always practicing it very, very closely. Um, he would yeah, seem he to was. have been consumed by it, at least, psychologically and then he's also consumed it seems he's got many novels about latin america mm. do you think then that the reason he was that those two things those two interests those two parts of his life came together be- because of the degree to which latin america is catholic
2: i think yeah for sure i mean as part of studying uh, looking for things related to arman and havana i looked at the diary that he kept in mexico in 1938 um, diary that mostly contributed to The Lawless Roads, uh, his travelogue, rather than The Power and the Glory. Um, but you can really see in that reading that um, how impressed he was, how moved he was by uh, uh, the faith. Of the Mexicans that he saw. I mean, in one sense, he hated his experience, and it, it was an extremely purgatorial experience that he had in mm. in Mexico. Obviously, you know, he went there to partly to to to, to report on um, the persecution of Catholics. Although he missed yeah. the yeah. most the, the the worst phase of that, but yeah, he was impressed by that by by the devoutness, by the faith of the ordinary poor. Uh, Mexicans, but he found, he did find it a very hard experience.
1: Did that? So he's moved by that. I mean, in some ways, I guess he was kind of. I mean, he probably felt like he was being persecuted himself because he. One of the reasons he had to stay in Mexico was because of the lawsuit from Hollywood, right?
2: Yeah, the Shirley Temple thing. Yeah, the yeah. and you discussed <laughs> that so, in the book. Yeah, but but as so, so I also you know you know we what we have to mention as well as his um, Catholicism is his manic depression. And, you know, him going on all these journeys to very harsh parts of the world, especially the third world, or to places in the world, especially after the Second World War, where there were um, sort of anti-colonial uprisings or insurrections. This was all the sort of, you know, he was seeking out places that would, and experiences that would distract him, that would take him away from from, from himself. Because you know, his manic depression really was a, a, a disease. Really was a disease. He really suffered very badly from it. Particularly actually in the in the nineteen fifties. But basically he'd suffered with it since um from his adolescence onwards. And of course his hmm. experiments with Russian roulette are, are well
1: known. Hmm. Do you think that the manic depressiveness and his infidelity were tied together because you yeah, but you mentioned I think it in, so uh, yeah
2: definitely definitely yeah 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 and uh, you know this long term mistress that he had Catherine Walston uh, American born but uh, married to a, a wealthy British landowner stroke politician um, you know again she she sort of centered him um, she, you know she she was the one that he could bounce ideas off and and have conversations with. Obviously, there's the the physical side of their relationship as well, but the, the the you know she sort of played hard to get for for most of the 1950s, and uh, husbands, well fairly amicable at the start of of the relationship, funnily enough started to restrict their uh, assignations (laughs) so Green became pretty desperate and so so he had that going on with his life, this this mistress who wanted to spend as much time with, with as possible and as the 1950s progressed he was spending ever less time with her and all these all these journeys that he was undertaking via indochina in the early 1950s that led to the his novel the quiet american um malaysia yeah, at the yeah. start of the 1950s you know just all, um where was the uh, kenya that the mao the, the mao were, uh, were, were involved in an uprising against the british in, a, in what was a british colony at the time and then Cuba, you know, mad, vicious Cuba where everything or anything was possible, you know, a sort of alternative to uh, Las Vegas in the, in the Caribbean ruled by a uh, US-backed <laughs> right-wing dictator who, you know, was killing a lot of and uh, torturing and killing a lot of ordinary Cubans. And then uh, Fidel Castro comes on the scene. and Green becomes interested in that as well.
1: Hmm. He is constantly, as you describe in the book, wherever there's something dangerous going on or some kind of revolution or something, he seems to be nearby or he'll hear about it and then so, show up there as an excerpt.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, what you're probably about to mention is the fact that. Um, it's pretty certain that his work for the intelligence services continued way beyond um, the end of the Second World War. Well, in fact, the mistress who he was with for the last couple of decades of his, of almost the last three decades of his life, said in the memoir of their relationship that he was definitely working for the intelligence services up to his dying day, in a, in a sort of informal capacity.
1: Do, do you think that the fact that he was always ready to turn up where something was going on, I mean, is that... Is that, again, like his sort of dangerous liaison, so to speak, with with these various women over the years, or at least the infidelity? I mean, is that all tied to his manic depressiveness, this need to sort of escape, or was he... was he Sure,
2: yeah. Just, like I said, to get away from himself and to get away from his yeah. home environment, which was very up and down, he didn't have a, a stable domestic life, although really I don't think he was ever suited for it. But you know his his trips abroad were sort of ticking several boxes at the same time. You know, for yeah. one, yeah. that he was possibly working for the or was working for the intelligence services. Two, he was seeking out material for, for books and and films. Um, three, he was dealing with his manic depression. Four, in a lot of a lot of his foreign trips, he did have liaisons with with one or other of his mistresses because he didn't just have one mistress, he had quite complicated uh, personal life. So all this traveling, um, you know, was, was, was satisfying all these needs.
1: Hmm. So you've, you'd mentioned um, in the book, and I think maybe already in the episode that he would go, uh, Graham Greene would go visit his daughter in Canada, Alberta, right? And she had a ranch up there that he had purchased for her and he yeah. would go visit her and and so forth. What kind of a, Parent was he? We know that his family life was obviously complicated, um, but what kind of a father was he to to these to these children, especially given uh, his work and the way he was constantly moving around and all that all that sort of lifestyle that he lives.
2: Yeah, I think well, he was typical of his age. Uh, born in 1904, so I don't think he was emotionally very attached to it to his children. He's not not be attentive in the sense of not being the sort of father who who would play games with his mm. um, son and his daughter. Um, but certainly provided financially throughout his life, and obviously left them a lot of money after after he passed away. So he's mm. very good in that sense. Mm.
1: You mentioned it might have been. Uh, part of the generation was he was he like that in other aspects of his life though i mean was he sort of i don't know if you would use the word cold but maybe not particularly um outwardly affectionate um did that come across in other ways as well Maybe, maybe not so much with his mistresses but was that characteristic of him in general or do you think it really is just that's the generation that he was from this is you know, that was
2: in terms of being a father, in terms of being a dad. You know, I don't think men from for, for, from his generation were known for, for sort of their child raising um, qualities, but um, you know, could, see, could be seen as quite cold. But as a person, um, again, partly due to his, or mainly due to his manic depression, he was a bit of a difficult uh, person. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense of extremely irritable, fastidious, obviously very up and down, the ups and downs of manic depression, um, could be extremely an extremely loyal friend, mm. but at the same time was quite quick to, to judge people and could fall out with people. Um, could fall out with his publishers, became very irritable about agreeing film deals, could be, you know, would demand the most money possible and sell all the rights for a film mm-hmm. and then be annoyed when the film company uh, directed director did whatever they liked with his with his film or his um or an adaptation or or, or even a script that he had written.
1: Hmm. You mentioned he was loyal though. So was there I mean, was there a a reason why his loyalties would turn was it was it the the manic depressiveness or was would he was the oh, chef, yeah. that kind of drove him to to kind of disconnect with somebody
2: yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, loyalty is a funny thing. I mean, the, the thing that, that crops up in the novel, Our Man in Nirvana, is, is this issue of loyalty. You know, should you be loyal, loyal to people or should you be loyal to your country? And according to, to the novel and to Green's own beliefs, you know, loyalty to people trumps over loyalty to one's country and and in fact loyalty or exaggerated loyalty to one's country um uh, um, can cause wars and that sort of thing so so um there's that sort of uh, moral question enters enters there
1: do you think he in his work is he grappling with that question in a way that he is offering what seems to be a sort of definitive moral conclusion um, or is he suggesting that it's maybe more uh, gray? I mean, maybe more gray than it is black and white. He spent his whole life, as we talked about earlier, as a spy. You know, when he died, he was apparently still involved in that sort of work, or at least late in his life. So he seems to have been loyal to his country in that sense.
2: Yeah, loyal, yeah, loyal to his country, loyal to, I think, the uh, British intelligence services. Mm apparently on the face of it loyal to Kim Philby, but perhaps not actually in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah that's complicated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's complicated. That's complicated. Kim Philby was obviously his boss during the Second World War. Yeah. Um but um well, after after Philby defected in 63 from Beirut to Moscow Green later, he got in a lot of trouble actually and caused a a good degree of um, controversy because he wrote a sort of Mm. quite uh, friendly introduction to Philby's uh, autobiography, My Silent War. Mm. But I argue in my book that actually um, Green was was aware that, that Philby was a traitor before he actually defected and, and his his disloyalty over the years was obviously proved at that moment. Um, is that but, a but, uh,
1: idea that, or is that something that you're kind of, is that a common argument about Green? No, that, well, that's something
2: new in the sense that that's something I draw out from one of the characters in the novel, oh, uh, okay. William Carter, who's oh, a spy okay. working for a rival organization. Carter is a name that crops up in several uh, Green novels. Carter, in reality, was one of the two uh, classmates in his school that bullied him. Mm. And so he, already, he always had a thing about, um, you know, he suffer, suffered a lot. This is not physical bullying, but sort of mental bullying. Mm. Um, schoolmates who played on the fact that Green's father was the school's headmaster. So Green had divided loyalties at school between his classmates and his family, i.e. his father ran the school. Mm. Um, so this this created a conflict of interest for him uh, at a young age, which was exploited by but by, by these two two schoolmates, one of them being Carter. Mm. so I argue in the in the, in my book that Carter in now man in Havana is actually there are aspects of Carter which uh, come from Philby mm. The fact, for example, that Carter in the novel has a stammer, Kim Philby had a really bad stammer. Um, Carter smokes a pipe when he meets Carter flying back from Jamaica to Cuba in the novel. uh, Carter is smoking a pipe. Philby smoked a pipe. uh, And the Hmm. fact that Carter's working for the other side in the novel. So in 1957, 58, when Green wrote the book, it was published in October 58. Um, This is five years before Philby defected in 1963, but it was suspected that he was the third man. So right, t- right. T- talk of Philby being the third man after after Burgess and McLean had defected in the early uh, 50s. Third man, of course, playing on the fact that Green's 1949 film set in Vienna was called The Third Man. Right,
1: yeah. Now, One of the great of the movies effect.
2: ever made. But- <laughs> well, thank you. I, th- I think that pretty much everyone's in agreement about that. that yeah, <laughs> it's in the top. Some would say the top five, I would say the top three films ever made. You know, it's up there with
1: Citizen Kane, isn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, depending on when you ask me, The Third Man Man is my favorite movie. So let me ask you this then: uh, Given that this book is a uh, somewhat satirical in a sense, is he being sympathetic towards Philby in the book, in this portrayal of this character that you you would argue is meant to be Philby? So it, is he sympathetic to the choices that Philby made, to the to the actions that Philby took, and and the motivations behind those choices and those actions, um, in a way that perhaps um, the rest of British intelligence, the British government, was not. I mean, I guess, how can a government be sympathetic to a traitor, I suppose? But um, but did that, did that alter the way he thought about the work that they were doing?
2: Well, I, first I would say that Carter in the novel, he enters the novel sort of halfway, two-thirds of the way through the narrative. He's not a major character in the novel, although he's an important character later on. Mm-hmm. I don't think that... Um, no, he certainly doesn't portray Carter as a sympathetic figure, no, no, they're very much a sort of sinister. And he makes fun of Carter in a way because at the end of the book, just before he right. shoots him dead, <laughs> shoots him dead. And there's, there's some parallels here between, we've just talked about the third man. Yeah. There are some parallels which I mentioned in my book between Our Man and Havana, you know, another de- uh, Graham green Carol Reed. Um, um, collaboration. There, the, it, it, in this action at the end where, of course, if you remember the the main narrative of The Third Man, um, Holly Martins arrives in Vienna looking for his friend, Harry Lyme, who has died, hasn't he? He, he, he thinks that he's been buried in Vienna cemetery. Mm-hmm. It turns out he's very alive and well. And at the end of the, the, the film, there's a chase scene in the sewer mm-hmm. where, where Holly Martins actually shoots dead, his friend Harry Lyme. In Our Man and Nirvana, um, there's a similar scene, not in the sewer, but in a in a sort of cobbled uh, street. The film is, well, like third man is shot, shot in black and white. Outside, actually, a brothel, and Wormhole, the main character, shoots Carter dead. So, 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 so that's that parallel. But no, he's not portrayed in a sympathetic way, no.
1: Do you think... Do you think Graham Greene viewed the work he was doing as noble and the work that the British intelligence were doing as noble? It seems to me that in a lot of his, you know, what he calls entertainments, and then, in, you know, in a movie like The Third Man, there's, there, um, there are questions of. of yeah, the, morality. I,
2: morali- I think yeah. morality, I mean, you mentioned the morality of third, and this is a constant theme in Greene's work as, uh, as a whole, you know, from, from beginning to end, you yeah. know, morality is there really throughout his novels his films throughout his life really so so it's a key theme
1: hmm. but so so you would argue then that, that there's a gray area for him as far as the work that they were doing yeah sorry
2: you you mentioned that a few yeah. few minutes ago yeah um black and white or gray and and, and certainly green saw life as um, you know, shades of grey rather than black and white, and it was those shades of grey they'd liked to exploit in his in his novels, and he certainly lived them in his in his life.
1: I was as I was reading your book, actually, I was I was wondering if perhaps that that grey area was what drew him to the work of spycraft, that the, the sort of complicated nature of that actually was sort of oh, sure. motivating for
2: yeah, him. It was perfect for him perfect for him you know I mean he obviously it obviously interested him and getting back again to the to his manic depression I think it was it, it was an outlet for him it was an outlet obviously and it was a theme in his in his work in his novels um but in his in in his real life as as well Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, um, the world of intelligence gave him uh, extra income. And he was, he was, this surprised me studying Green, was just how much he was. He was quite a mercenary, I think, mm-hmm. it, it, with regards to money, you know, squeezing the last penny out of everything he did.
1: Yeah, every screenplay.
2: I'm sure he did the same with MI6 as well in terms (laughs) of them paying, paying for them financing a lot of these trips or partly financing them. But whether they were financing his trips or not, and there's no, unfortunately, no paperwork, no paperwork that I've unearthed because the MI6 files are very much closed. Yeah, yeah, Um, says that, but it's pretty evident that, that that they were they were and when they weren't paying he still he was still keeping his eyes and ears open whenever he was traveling around the globe um and he he, he visited many trouble spots around the world the east and west and north and south he he, he had his eyes and ears open
1: Mm. it does seem to me that people that a novelist or an artist in some way was would would make for a a useful spy. There's an Eric Ambler novel where actually yeah, one of the main characters sure. is a photographer who they hire yeah. as a as a spy. Um, that, and you look at so. how many novelists became, or how many, well, novelists became spies or vice versa over in the 20th century. Sure, there's a whole list of them.
2: Norm yeah. oh, on your side of the Atlantic, Hemingway did, did some intelligence okay. work, didn't he? in Cuba during the Second World War, not very successfully, but again, it was a bit of a lark, a bit of a game.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: But it played quite well and it was an interesting diversion. It was an interesting diversion. Yeah. And Green certainly sought those diversions from, from, his, from his manic depressive self.
1: You know, it's interesting because I'm a big Le Carre fan. And I was, mm. But in a sense, you know, you read um, The Spy Who Came In from The Cold, for example, and, and a lot of his stuff was written after he left. I mean, as far as I know. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I don't think he worked for MI6 for that long, really. And, and it know. seems like
1: he became disillusioned with that grey area and then left and produced fiction that kind of processed that and challenged the sort of ethos of spycraft. Whereas Green, it's like the opposite. That that grey area was what was what, motive, what drew him to it, in a sense.
2: Yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think it was a real blessing for him, you know, and... Um, you know, his actual official service, of course, of course, it's not publicized at the time, was quite short. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, he they, they kept up these contacts informally, for, for, for according to, to the, the last long-term mystery of his life until the day he died.
1: Mm. Well, okay, so a couple more questions here before I let you go. Um, where do you think that our man in Havana, which you've studied so closely ranks in the, the grand green canon there are obviously screenplays um there are there's the, there's the essays and the journalism that he wrote uh, and then there yeah. are so many so many novels many of which are very can be considered you know very highbrow literary works the power and the glory the end of the affair and so forth in some ways in my opinion our man in havana seems to bridge the gap between his highbrow literary you know quote-unquote literary stuff and what he called his entertainments so yeah. but for me the third man might be the greatest thing he, he ever did of course that was a collaboration with carol reed but what's what's your take on where it belongs in the canon
2: um i don't think he or any of his fans consider it his best novel now that i consider it one of his weakest um i think it's certainly the funniest yeah yeah you know it's the one where the, where, where, the most satirical of, of everything he did I argue you know the the the, the quiet American perhaps is considered his most prophetic novel because of its you know published in fifty five um but it sort of foresaw predicted prophesied um american north american intervention in the nineteen sixties mm-hmm. in vietnam mm-hmm. but I, I sort of argue in my book that Our um, man invani was up there as well, not only because of its tale about invented weapon sites prophesied uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but because of this story about invented intelligence and bungling at the top of the British government and governments in general, um, sort of presaged what happened um, with the WND debacle mm. uh, decades later, mm. weapons of mm. mass destruction. And just as a, as, a, as a very slight coincidence, W and D, of course, are the, are the first, middle, and, and last letters of Wormold's name. Just to just to add to the um, to add a little bit uh, another ingredient to it. So yeah, so I'd say one of the the, the funniest and one of the the, the, the most prophetic.
1: Hmm.
2: One of the most prophetic. But yeah, in terms of rank, I would say you know somewhere in the middle.
1: Hmm. What's your uh, What's your personal favorite favorite Graham Greene? Novel or work? Well, uh, my, my personal favorite
2: is Armen and Havana because oh, it's right, set okay. in Cuba, and right. I have this sort of long standing connection to Cuba. I, I, I also, its, it's um, exoticness mm. sort of appeals yeah. to me with the exoticness yeah. of um, Cuba in general. Let's see. Um well in terms of his what well, you know you mentioned the third man, the third man's definitely the best film. <laughs> no <laughs> right, doubt about yeah, that yeah. at all. And actually, when you think about it, that not many of the films were that successful. Uh, for me, Brighton Rock is the second most successful film.
1: Hmm. Hmm. What do you think is his greatest novel? If you just separate kind of your own tastes.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, see, you see, Green never considered himself great, or any of his novels great. You know, you know, he didn't consider himself a Tolstoy or a Dickens, (laughs) and I think he was right not to. You know, I mean, he's, he's he's not not right up there. What is it that William Golding said about Green that he was, you know, the the chronicler of twentieth century humankind's consciousness? And I think that's very true in the sense that he he basically lived through every decade of the twentieth century, or we born in nineteen oh four, died in, in nineteen ninety-one. But you know, he just lived through all you know, he was growing up during the, the first world war was there during the Blitz at the start of the Second World War, served in Africa for MI6 in the sort of early middle part of the war, worked under Kim Philby in the late part of the war, resigned from the service before the war ended, and then, and then set the third man in the bombed-out ruins of Vienna in 1949, then wrote The Quiet American, presaging the, the, the Vietnam War in the 1960s and, and tragic American involvement. Um, our men in Havana are on the cusp of the Cuban Revolution, the comedians in Papadox Haiti, you know, the voodoo uh, dictator. You know, he, was, he just lived it. He just lived it, and he was there. You know, he's constantly traveling. He was in, in Africa. He was in Malaya. He was in Vietnam. He was in Cuba. He was in Mexico during religious persecution, in the late 1930s. Mm-hmm. He just, he just, you know, he was just, he just lived the 20th century, and it's all there in his novels and films. So, so that's the thing that most most impresses me. He considered the for, for many years the power and the glory his best novel but after writing the honorary consul um
1: that's a later uh, one right
2: um, late, published in 1973 okay. which sort of really is at the start of the dirty war in in latin america hmm. he considered that his his best novel hmm. But even like late in the 70s when he was pretty old, you know, born in uh, nineteen nineteen oh 1978, he published The the Human Factor, which is another take on on British intelligence, which is a great novel, a really good novel. Mm. But I think, uh, personally, I think that's, caught, that's crying out for a remake. Hmm. Because the, the the first version of the film was, was it just had all sorts of, of problems, including running out of money, and, and it was a bit of a desperate um, effort in the end. Hmm. But um, you would you mentioned John Le Carre and what the, what they did with um, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spies, a TV series and later uh, as yeah. a film, yeah. quite recently actually. Yeah. They, they they could do a similar job with, with, with the human factor. It that would be a really, really
1: good novel and it could be a really good film. That would be excellent. So let me mm. ask you this. When you look at the whole of his work, that canon, you know, is it do you mm. think it's more driven? Like if you take it as a whole, not as individual novels, but if you add mm. it all together, do you think it's more driven or, or speaks to um a sense of hopefulness about mankind and about the times that he lived in, or is it more driven and sort of founded upon pessimism about that? Like if you read the whole oh. thing and you have to add it all together, or is that an impossible question to answer?
2: Well, I'd like to say the former, but I think <laughs> actually, ultimately Green was a realist. Yeah. And I think one other thing that stands out for me, for Green and why I like him, is that he's completely an unsentimental person, hmm. both as a man and in his work. And, and I admire that personally. I'm not. A, I'm not a, a, a great fan of sentimentality. I'm hmm. um, Yeah, I'd like things to be really great and rosy. In reality, yeah, right, right. Unfortunately, especially what everything that's going on in the world at the moment doesn't make me yeah. particularly optimistic. But I'd like, well, yeah. You know, we have to hold on to hope, don't we? And, and I don't think Green was was a complete pessimist, and he really relished fun moments hmm. in life and, and, and really lived life to the full in terms of his personal life, perhaps quite selfishly, um, but in terms of travel and, and, and drink and having uh, sort of experiences all around the world. I think, you know, there, there's a bit of both there. Yeah, ultimately, I'm saying he's a, he he was very much a
1: realist, but... Um, You're saying he was complicated. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he, he definitely complicated. No doubt about that. A complicated person.
1: We touched on this a little bit earlier, but do you think that um, his complicated relationship with his sort of on again, off again Catholicism found, was more drove his pessimism, or, or was that where any sense of hopefulness came in for him? Do you think, or what do you think he would have argued about that? Because in some ways, when I read Green, it seems that his, his there is a begrudging sense that a begrudgingness that goes along with his Catholicism. Like he wants it to be there, but also doesn't want it to be there. He wants to be a part of it, but then also doesn't want to be a part of it. Kind of like the whiskey priest, I suppose, in the power and the glory. And so is, is that, does that create for him hopefulness, do you think? Or do you think in a sense, his Catholic belief and the degrees which he practices Catholicism was actually a sort of pessimism at work? <laughs>
2: Ooh, I find that difficult. And I think you've summarized it better than I could. Um, I, I, I'm reluctant to make a judgment on that,
1: actually. Yeah, that's, fair. that's
2: fair, I think <laughs> and, um, my, my sort of conclusion about his Catholicism is that, that, that like other aspects of him, it was um, – I don't think you can take it at face value, and I think to a certain extent he, he liked it to sort of um, – you know, it's part of his public persona. You know, the the, the Catholicism. I think he, he believed, it, and I'm saying it was completely false, but yeah. it, but, but it, it it distracted from some of his sort of um, some less of less Catholic inter- proclivities. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, and and very much, and I say this at least once in the novel: very much a maverick Catholic, very unorthodox yeah. Catholic, yeah. especially in the way that he lived his life. Mm.
1: So. All this, the complicated nature of Graham Greene. And maybe that's what made him a valuable spy for the the British government. Just the fact that you didn't know what he was.
2: I think he was. He was was an asset. He was an asset. He really could, like that uh, Dutch beer of uh, um, Heineken, reach the parts that other (laughs) people can reach. And, for example, reach the people... And the situations that, for example, diplomats couldn 't reach mm. for all sorts of reasons mm. for all sorts of reasons, you know the front was a sort of left leaning uh, Catholic novelist, stroke writer, and sometimes um, correspondent foreign correspondent who could really get to the literally get to the front line of conflict, meet the people at the very top Castro or Rijos, in Panama later in his life ho chi minh in the 1950s in vietnam and and speak to them on a sort of informal basis whereas uh, you know the uh, somebody in the diplomatic world is always meeting somebody on a very formal basis and maybe is not able to tease out the, the same information and see the same things that green could hmm.
1: it's kind of like reminds me of what holly martins is able to do in the third man where he's able to get where the diplomats yeah. and the officials couldn't get to
2: yeah yeah no, you know so much of of what's in this novel is is based on reality including including the characters it's it's too too Simplistic and too black and white, getting back to that, to say so and so is so and so, like Carter is Philby. Mm, Yeah. Or Holly Martins is so and so, or Harry Lyon is so and so. But, you know, these are all amalgams Mm. uh, of different people Mm.
1: that he met and knew in his life. And then his imagination worked on for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah yeah and the, the, I think the smoking of opium in the opium dens yeah. of Vietnam in the 1950s and he, he sought opium in the, in the mid late late 1950s in Havana maybe helped him in, the, in unlocking his his uh, very rich subconscious.
1: how very Sherlock Holmes of him? Yeah <laughs> Well, thanks to Dr. Hull for joining me on this episode of Lee Romania. Remember, you can find his book, Our Man Down in Havana, the story behind Graham Greene's Cold War spy novel, wherever books are sold. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods. If you like this episode in the show, please hit that review button in whatever app you're using to listen. It really does go a long way in helping us spread the word, which of course means we can keep making more episodes for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening, and happy reading. Talk to you next week you <laughs>